Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to VMB, the voice of Manhattan business, brought to you by the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Bruce Hurwitz. You can find me on the web at hsstaffing.com. I hope everyone will be able to join me at noon next Wednesday for my final show as host of the Voice of Manhattan Business. My guest will be Carl Mazzanti from eMazzanti Technologies. We will be discussing digital marketing. To learn about all future shows, please visit our website, thevoiceofmanhattanbusiness.com. And please remember to visit the events page on the Chamber's website, manhattancc.org, to learn about upcoming events on the Chamber's calendar. I am delighted to be joined today by Taylor Trustee from Blackstone Media Network. We will be discussing the importance of a discovery process for a successful marketing campaign. Please remember, the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants, and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301. And dial 1 so I know you have a question. Taylor, are you with us? I am here, yes. Very good. I was worried there for a second. Thank you very much, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Blackstone Media? Uh, so I have been a, I was a computer nerd since a young age. I don't think you ever stopped becoming a computer nerd, but <laughs> I taught myself uh, programming at 13 and then started professionally programming at 15 and uh, worked for Hewlett-Packard starting at 16 and then at an e-commerce startup and then dropped out of college and started uh, an e-commerce company. It was a sports collectibles business with two colleagues uh, and then sold out to them and started Blackstone 11 years ago. So started Blackstone shortly after the sports collectibles business. I uh, started, did all this in Kentucky, and that's where Blackstone is based. So it's based in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where the team is. I moved to New York uh, last summer, so I've been here full-time about nine months or so. Um, but we we are, we are a high-end, effectively, digital studio that focuses on business-to-business um, uh, companies and brands. So our Largest clients would be like Toyota Forklifts. So we do all of the website work for all of North America for Toyota Forklifts. Uh, Sonoma Couture, which is the top Chardonnay in the U.S., uh, and Mercer and, and some others. Very good. I had to smile when you said, because many years ago I had a friend, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet, calm, cool, always collected, and I went to his office and his uh, executive assistant was uh, had this very concerned expression on her face. She said, something's wrong. He's in there. He's talking to himself. He's cursing. He says he's going to kill her. So I go in, and he was just distraught. His mother threw out a box 
that he had left in his old room that had written on it clearly, do not throw away. Inside <laughs> that box were his baseball cards, including a mint condition Sandy Koufax rookie card. Wow. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I think about when I hear sports collectibles. But that is not our topic for today. Our topic is the importance of the discovery process for a successful marketing campaign. So my first question is, what is a marketing campaign? I think marketing, much like branding, means different things to different people. From our perspective at Blackstone, it, it, it means typically generating leads. So if you're a business, let's say you sell, you're a, a national uh, forklift manufacturer, let's just say, or, you're, or, you, in, okay. or you manufacture anything, toy, or you manufacture, you know, wear washers or anything. Typically, a lot of these manufacturers don't sell directly. So they may, they may make the goods, but over time, they've built up a distribution network. They may have dealerships. Uh, they may sell through partners online. But the manufacturer is still responsible for getting the name out there, right? And so in our mind, that manufacturer is marketing because they are getting the name out there. But they're not selling directly, so they're doing more lead generation where they're trying to get up leads gather leads, and then typically they farm them out to, you know, uh, retailers or distributors or dealers or what have you. Uh, there's other segments of marketing, which could be, you know, maybe you sell, I was talking with a guy yesterday that sells fish online. <laughs> and, you know, he's direct to consumer. So he, he buys the fish probably from a wholesaler. He, he has a warehouse, and then he ships them out. So in his mind, you know, marketing is, the, the the sales. So to him, you know, he's focusing on acquiring new customers to sell them more fish or to sell more fish to existing customers. Uh, so marketing depends, you know, your definition of it would, would depend on who you are in that role and what your company does. And, and that's why we start with what the goals of the business are. Uh, but, but typically, you know, it kind of falls into the realm of you're attempting to generate more leads online you're attempting to uh, sell more product online um, or something similar to one of those things. Now, my next question is going to seem stupid. And in a way, you know, they, all of our teachers told us at one point in our academic careers, there's no such thing as a stupid question. But this one comes pretty close to it, but I'm asking it because when I meet with an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting a business, and I say to him, how are you going to go about marketing your product, your service? They'll usually say, well, I know people. I'll network. I'll say, do you have a plan? And then they ask me, why do I need a marketing plan? So I'm asking you the question. Why is a marketing plan a necessity? Well, I mean, I, I could make an argument that there are some people who, who don't need a marketing plan, right? You know, if you have a restaurant and you're, you're in a great location and or you have a great brand name and people are going to come in the door anyway, then you probably don't need a marketing plan. Or your marketing plan consists of I have an amazing location and I'm selling this type of food or cuisine in the right neighborhood. Um, so 
I, I, I don't think marketing plans are, are needed for everyone. Similarly, if you're a really charismatic, enthusiastic networking person who can go to three networking events a day and, every, and you just ooze confidence and everybody loves you, then mm-hmm. that's your marketing plan. You know, your marketing plan is that you show up to events and people are like, I want to do business with him or her. And that's okay. You know, that, that, that is perfectly fine. Um, and, and for a lot of people, I, I don't think, and there's no shame in that, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. There's no problem with that. It can be difficult to scale, but not every business is designed to scale. I would argue very few are really designed to scale. Uh, so, so that's okay. You know, in, in our context, typically, you know, we're dealing with these larger companies and they already have a market presence. They usually have been around for a while. And, and the plan is usually around kind of repositioning. So some things have changed in their market. Let's just say that you're, you know, the third or fourth largest in your region or in the country or in the world. And then some of your competitors decided to merge or one of your competitors went out of business or, you know, something, or uh, uh, your industry is in a downturn, right? Because it's becoming uh, obsolete. And so so all these things can happen uh, and, and a plan can help a lot. Our plans center around getting really close to the customers. Uh, so getting very, very close and getting a lot of feedback from the customers to determine, you know, a data-driven approach to, to, to build things out. I think you touched on it just now, but most of our listeners are solopreneurs or small businesses who are not known. They don't have a great location. They're not the, um, I don't know, I was going to say the Copacabana, but the Copacabana is no longer even the Copacabana. They're not this prominent mm-hmm. restaurant that everybody, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Shake Shack? Yeah. They're, they're not Shake Shack. They're just small guy, has a presence on LinkedIn, maybe Twitter, maybe Facebook. How would you encourage them to develop a marketing plan? So in that scenario, and, and especially if you read marketing books or you read marketing blogs or you read any of these where you go and you see speakers like myself talking about marketing, um, a, a lot of what's out there is geared around scaling or it's geared around getting really big. And I'm getting some feedback. I don't know if that's on my end or if that's somewhere else. I'm not hearing anything, so we should be okay. okay. So the... Uh, uh, and, 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 and that's, you know, I kind of touched on this a second ago, but that, that's not, not needed for everyone. What, what I think, and I don't remember who said this, uh, but when, when we talk about Facebook likes or we talk about, you know, your number of Twitter followers or, or number of visits that come to your website or any of those things, those are what we call in the industry vanity metrics. They're easy to gain. Look, if, if you're a restaurant and you have – you know, you do a million dollars a year at the corner of somewhere. Um, you could, for less than $500, buy hundreds of thousands of Facebook likes. And, and, or, or you could be a three-person restaurant, or you could be no business at all. You know, it's, it's actually very easy to game, game the system. Um, and, and so what, what, what we really focus on is if you're that small, if you're a solopreneur, 
uh, if you're running a small restaurant or you're doing, you know, or you're working out of a truck or something similar, it's not necessarily about how do I acquire a thousand new customers or a hundred new customers or 10 new customers. Um, oftentimes it's about how do I make 10 or even five people absolutely love what we do. And then you start there. So you start with fanatical fans. So you start with people that ooze that, um, you know, they, they tell all their friends about you. You know, Seth Godin talks a lot about this. And, and it's, that, it's that concept of focusing on fewer people, but a heavy emphasis on those people. So the regulars that come into your restaurant or the regulars that use your plumbing service or, or electrician service or what have you, it's about how do I make them feel like a million bucks? Or how do I make them look great to their boss? Or how do I get them to get the next promotion or what have you? Um, or how do I make them feel good when they come into my restaurant? And that personal service can speak a lot, and you may only be doing it to one person or two people or three people. But starting small like that and making those passionate fans are where these larger brands like Shake Shack, you know, that, that's where a lot of them started from. Now, our topic again, thank you for that. Our topic again is the importance of a discovery process for a successful marketing campaign. So what do you mean by a discovery process? So the, the discovery, I, I would say the discovery, there's a slight caveat to that. So if you're doing a large-scale marketing campaign, so let's say you're investing more than $100,000. So if, if investing more than hundred k, the discovery process uh, is, is quite important. So what discovery is, is a few things. One, it starts with alignment. So it's sitting down the people inside of your business. So you sit down in a room. Uh, and usually for one, two, or three days, and you you go through a series of exercises that um, that help you you know get alignment internally and externally. So you usually have a third-party facilitator, and you're focusing on what are the goals. So if we want to invest $100,000, what do we want? What's the return that we want? How will we know this is successful? And that can start with questions like, if 12 months from now this is a runaway success, what does that look like? You know, 12 months from now, I've added a new location. 12 months from now, you know, we've increased sales by 25%. 12 months from now, you know, we have 10% 10 more went to the bottom line. What does that look like? Uh, So you start with what does success look like? And if you don't know the answer to that question, if you don't know, well, I don't know what success looks like or how we would define success, then you spend a lot of time figuring that out. And before, you know, doing Google AdWords or investing in email marketing or hiring salespeople or any of that, start first with what does success look like. And then from there, uh, so then, then you go and build. So the, the rest of discovery is around interviewing. So it's going and talking to customers one-on-one with a series of questions. So why, why do you buy from me? You wouldn't do it as the owner of the business. You'd have somebody else do it. But it's why do you buy from John? Why do you buy from Bruce? Why, why, what makes you a passionate customer? What could Bruce do better? Which of Bruce's competitors have you bought from in the past? What did you like or dislike about them? So it's a deep series of questions that usually last 30 to 45 minutes. And then you do this with a number of customers, usually 15 or 20. And then you start to notice patterns. What, do this, what, what are the things that almost everybody said? What are the things that everybody said that we can improve on, et cetera? Uh, and then you overlay competitor information. So you look at what competitors are doing in the market. Um, you do usability testing. It's kind of a whole series of, of, of items that go into that. But what it's, 
what, what it's really about is that today advertising is focused on data-driven results and not so much about, oh, you know, my gut tells me that this will work or this is the right direction we should go, which is the way mm. that things used to work in the past. The only problem I have with what you said is the 100K. Because, okay, you've got um, a uh, – you said one of your clients is a um, – a winery, if mm-hmm. I heard correctly, uh, you know they can afford a hundred k. For them, a hundred k is a hundred k. For the small guy, a thousand dollars is the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars. You follow me with the so? Why wouldn't they want to make sure that their thousand dollars is being properly invested, and maybe not? go to the extreme of uh, interviewing 15 people, but maybe five of their best clients or 10 of their best clients, and maybe having a uh, an employee ask the questions instead of the owner, but still doing some of the legwork because they also want an additional 10, 20 customers or whatever. I, I completely agree, and that's you know part part of why I'm – on this show is, is to speak about the things that we use at scale, you know, because the discoveries at this level are twenty to eighty thousand dollars. So that that's up front, and that's before you start building or designing anything. And most businesses don't need or want that level of investment up front. Um, so so yes, absolutely, you can take elements of this and and do them. I, I think that starting with defining what does success look like. And getting that really rigid is the step that a lot of people skip. So they just say, well, I'll know if this was successful if we get more customers. Well, how many more customers? What kinds of customers? Who are your ideal customers? Who are your top five best customers? And those best customers might not be your largest customers. A lot of companies, and I've been doing this, you know, 15 years, a lot of companies in there, um, they, they speak about their best customers because those are the ones that give them the revenue. But those best customers are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they're abusive. Uh, they're not profitable. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are other elements of that. So who are the best customers? Because it might be kind of mid-range ones. And, and so that introspective kind of time that's spent in a room where you're not checking email or anything else and thinking about, okay, who are my best customers? How do I define success? So 12 months from now, how will I know that this $1,000 that you're referring to, Bruce, how would I know that this $1,000 was worth it for me so that I would spend $5,000 next time? Um, and, and, then, and then you go from there. Gotcha. Now, I want to get into some technical terms. Talk to us about creating project touch points. To touch well, I mean, there are a number of types of touch points. I, I, I referenced this earlier. Oftentimes, uh, what, what happens when an agency gets hired is at the beginning, there's a lot of excitement, right? There's a series of questions. There might be a kickoff meeting. Um, it, it, you know, everybody's excited, and those questions. You know, hopefully, somebody's taking notes on those questions. And then an agency will go off and do something, right? They, they go off for two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks, and then they come back. 
And they said, okay, you know, we've been working in a cave doing this work, and here's what we have. And the client can say, oh, no, you know, wow, you, you really went down the wrong path. And maybe they feel bad about it because maybe the client blames themselves. Well, I should have been more clear, or I didn't know what I was looking for, or what have you. Um, and, and, and so, you know, basically what ends up happening is that everybody ends up upset. <laughs> no one's happy. Uh, you know, maybe there's cost overruns, there's uh, time overruns, and the vast majority of these projects, I mean, th there's data out there that talks about this, these types of, you know, whether it's a website build or, or, you know, even things like email marketing builds and things like that, the vast majority go over time and they go over budget. And a lot of why they go over time and budget is poor communication, so poor touch points, uh, and then a poor, poor, poor structure up front. And I know because we used to do this all the time. All of our projects always went over budget and time. Always. <laughs> and I just took it as that's just the way it is. Um, and so touch points mean that every week we are, and it doesn't have to be every week, but it could be every three days if it's something really intensive. Every week we're going to, we're going to talk. So it can be over the phone. It could be Skype. It could be in person. And, and we're going to sit down and we're going to go through these series of questions. So some of the questions are, what did you guys work on last week? What is on the docket for this week? So I'm going to say it from the agency perspective. So the agency would say, or this could be a contractor, here's what we did last week. Here's what's on the docket for this week. Here's what we're waiting for from the client. So here's what's holding us up. And then here's where we are in the overall scope of things. So at this point, we should be 50% done with the project or with the engagement, and we are 30% finished. So that way, those touch points make sure that week by week, everyone knows where we are. And if things start to go off the rails, uh, you know that. But similarly, it gives the client satisfaction that things are, things are going well. And, um, and, and so those calls, by the way, or those Skype can take five minutes, you know, because you usually mm -hmm. send that email in advance. So those calls, you can hop on it. You talk about a couple of things. And you're like, great, thank you so much, and then you end the call. But those touch points can be so valuable in, in knowing what's working and what's not working as early as possible. Thank you for that. And just a reminder, you're listening to the Voice of Manhattan Business. My guest today is Taylor Trustree from Blackstone Media Network. We are discussing the importance of a discovery process for a successful marketing campaign. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301 and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Taylor, what are usability reviews? Usability reviews, um, there, there's this great tool that we use called usertesting.com, usertesting.com. Usability reviews or user tests are a way of, through a tool like usertesting.com, you can pay testers, so you pay through the service, and then the testers on the other side get paid for doing the work, and those testers follow a, follow a script, and then you get a deliverable. So I'll give you an example. An example of how this plays out is, uh, uh, let, let, let's say you run an, an ice cream shop and you want, you know, maybe you have two other ice cream shops that are within three blocks of you 
and you want to know from a digital perspective, so from, from a smartphone or a website or social media perspective, how do you stack up? Well, one of what user testing allows you to do is you can go on user testing and you say, okay, I want five testers that live in these areas that are men or women that fit these ages who have this level of computer expertise or what have you. And then user testing goes out and finds those people. And then you give them a script. So you say, hi, uh, you're looking for, you know, it's a, it's a warm June day afternoon, and you're looking for ice cream for you and your kids. You're standing at the corner of da-da-da and da-da-da, uh, and you pull out your smartphone, and you're looking for a local ice cream shop. Now, please do a search for ice cream near 1004. And then tell, tell me what you like and dislike about what shows up on the screen. So that, that's an example of you're kind of leading the users down, down a path of a story. It's like a narrative. And so you're not, you don't ask leading questions. Um, and so you say things like, so click, look around and, and say what interests you. And the beauty of user testing is that you get a video deliverable of everything that that person is seeing on their screen. So you get a video of everything that they do on their screen, following the tasks that you gave them. You also get audio, so they're actually narrating this as they're, as, you know, they're reading your instructions out loud, and they're saying, okay, I'm looking for ice cream. I have a four-year-old daughter, so her and I are going to go and get ice cream. I'm doing this Google search right now. This is interesting. Okay, these three places showed up. Huh, this one has poor reviews, so I'm not going to go there. This one's too far away. I'll tap on this one. Oh, they don't have a mobile website. So then it goes down this whole path of what's working and what's not working. And the beauty of user testing is that it's fairly inexpensive. You don't have to do a ton of them to get great results. Uh, you can do 5 to 15. I'd start with 5. You can do 5 to 15 and get really valuable insights about what's working and what's not. You can have the testers do these things on a desktop computer. You could have them do it on a tablet, or you could have them do it on a smartphone. If your business is very, you know, like an ice cream parlor, I would imagine a lot of customers are doing those searches on their phones because they're out and about, and so I'd have the user testers do that as well. For doing things like heavy machinery, a lot of those customers still do that research on a desktop, um, so you could do both. You could have some testers do it on desktop, some testers do it on mobile. It is an incredibly powerful way to see through a customer's eye, um, you know, you, you get to hear their voice and their sense of delight or frustration in a way that isn't, you know, it's, it's the opinions of your customers instead of the opinions of somebody who works for you or yourself who's really in the business um, or your mom or, or your kids. So it's, it's a third-party unbiased view about what's working and what's not, and it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful tool. I like the idea of being able to hear them because tone of voice is so important. I've learned that when checking references or even with talking to career counseling clients and doing mock interviews because your tone of voice says a lot, especially if uh, you're on the phone so you don't have any body language. Your tone of voice goes to sincerity. And you can learn more from how somebody says something than what they're actually saying. So kudos on that point. Now, what are competitive and user needs analyses? So this kind of goes back to understanding who the users are. 
So let's say you're an ice cream shop. If you're an ice cream shop, there are a couple of different types of customers. I, I know I'm an ice cream. I love ice cream, but I don't. You know, <laughs> I don't have any clients in the ice cream space. <laughs> What's that? Well, we've kind of figured that one out, I think. Oh, you good. like All ice right. cream. So, you know, you said wine once, you said forklifts once, but ice cream you've mentioned a half dozen times already. Perfect. Well, we're going for the full dozen. So the ice uh, cream, you know, industry, but let's, let's say you own the ice cream shop. There are a few different types of customers. I'm making these up. One would be, course. you know, a family that's out on a Saturday afternoon. It's hot. They want ice cream. Maybe a second type of customer is a connoisseur. So they're one to, they almost like shop for ice cream. They, they really, they look over the ingredients. They're really passionate about it. They love their brands. Maybe they have brand allegiance. Maybe there's another type of ice cream customer that um, is allergic to dairy or, or, you know, they have health needs that they're looking for a very specific type of ice cream shop or a very specific, um, you know, flavor of ice cream or what have you. The, the benefit of understanding the types of customers that come into your store or your restaurant or, or that buy from you is that you speak to each of them in a different way. The health conscious customer uh, reads things in a different way and is looking for patterns in a different way than just somebody who wants quick ice cream for them and their kid. Uh, and, and so understanding those users can be very valuable uh, when when doing things like competitive analysis or a usability test. Because if your whole ice cream shop is geared towards health-conscious customers, um, then the opinions of those who are not health-conscious mean nothing. So uh, Patrick Lencioni talks about this in his book, The Advantage, where he talks about that the, the, the chief advantage of companies in the latter part of the 21st century will be what's called organizational health, will be the culture, effectively, of an organization. And one of the things that he talks about in The Advantage is that a lot of people talk about their types of customers or their types of employees or what their business stands for, you know, their company values. They're all positive. But what he says we're really missing are the things that we will not stand for or the customers that we will not tolerate. And, and so th those could be things like we, we, will, we will not tolerate customers who are liars or thieves or any of that. But it could also be things like, a target or a, a customer that is not health conscious um, is not a good customer for us. Therefore, the opinions of those who aren't health conscious, we will not, we will not hold in high regard. And I think that there's an immense amount of value in understanding who those customers are and also who our customers are not. So if you're just the normal Joe Schmo ice cream shop and you don't have healthy options, that can be okay if your target customers aren't healthy customers. Um, and so that plays out when we look at things like competitive analysis, we do usability testing and others, when you do surveys or when you're interviewing customers, that all can play out in, in that way. So understanding what we, what, we, what we do stand for, what we don't stand for, um, who our customers are and who our customers are not can be very valuable. As an example, really quick, if there's four ice cream, I'm just going to keep using ice cream. If there's four ice cream shops <laughs> on a, you know, in, in a one-mile radius, it may be really saturated. But if all four of them are effectively saying the same message, they all sell at roughly the same price, they're all saying that they're good and high quality, there could be an opportunity to be the healthy one in that choice, in that option, right? And in that scenario, that's your differentiation. 
that's where competitive analysis, usability testing, and all that can be very valuable. But it's also where understanding who the customer is and who the customer is not can be extremely valuable. Now, we all have stories of failed focus groups, like the group that saw the pilot for Seinfeld and said that it was a, it was a bad, um, forget the word, a bad group of actors. They didn't, they didn't like how they interacted with each other. What's your opinion of focus groups? I, I have a similar. I have a similar opinion. Um, we don't do focus groups. We think that there is more value, and it's less expensive uh, to do one-on-one. So the, the one of the struggles with a focus group is that oftentimes you get one or two people who are loud and or passionate about their views, and they just end up either talking over everyone else or being so passionate about what they're saying that everyone else just says, "Oh yeah, I agree with him." Or I agree with her. Uh, so that kind of group think can be very dangerous uh, when, when developing a TV show or a business or what have you. So what we, what we do is we have a, we, we do customer surveys, which are, you know, you can survey. Uh, there are tools out there to do this. Google has one called Google Consumer Surveys. You can get survey results for around, for between a dollar and five dollars per. And so it, for less than three or four or five hundred dollars, you can get a number of um, a number of people to fill out your survey, and so that that's from a macro perspective. So somebody's filling out survey questions about ice cream, let's say, and then and then you have what we would call micro level. So macro would be a, a lot of people answering surveys. Micro would be one-on-one phone interviews. It could be um, on the street interviews where you're literally going outside and interviewing people on the street. If you're a retail business and you want to know the, the thoughts of your customers that are right around your business, um, it could also be things like Skype so that you can see, as you mentioned earlier, Bruce, so that you can see their, uh, their facial expressions and you can record those as well. Um, it, it could also be usability testing through, through a tool like user testing, which I talked about earlier. So there are, the, there are a number of incredible ways of talking to customers one-on-one that used to be really difficult to do in the past using technology. Um, and there are ways of doing surveys that used to be very expensive and, and took a long time in the past. So the tools are way better today than they used to be, way less expensive, um, and, and it's really hurting the focus group industry. I always like this, this story. I don't know if it's true, but I've read it in a number of different places that Henry Ford was asked how he got the idea for the Model T and the, the automobile, and uh, did he do, to use today's parlance, I don't know what they were called it back then, did he do a focus group? And his response was, if I had asked people what they were looking for, they all would have said a faster horse. I think that's very, you know, it, it's insightful. If it's true, and if it's not, it's a nice story, so who cares? Last question, <laughs> what, what is a site map, and why is it important? So a site map is, is, a, is a list of pages on a website. The, 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 the struggle with a site map, as it's traditionally discussed, is that a, a site map is very flat. 
So it says, you know, on our website, we're going to have a home page. We're going to have an about page. We'll have a products page. Uh, we'll have an industries page. We'll have a contact page, let's just say. And that looks okay. very neat and simple. Uh, that, that, if you just leave it at that, then it's not terribly valuable. Where a sitemap becomes valuable is uh, in a couple of ways. One, when you add more detail. So who's the uh, – what do we want someone to do? What's the intended result or the intended action when somebody lands on our homepage? When somebody lands on our about page, what is the intended action or result that we want them to have? So you do that for every page. And then the other thing that you can do is to re really, you know, we, we talk about this at Blackstone, talk about what's called a user journey. A lot of websites are built as digital versions of brochures. So they take what they would put in a brochure or maybe what is in a brochure and they just put it online. They take the same pages that's on a brochure and they put it online. The thing is, is that people read and consume brochures or pamphlets or books or any of those things in a very different way than they consume a website or a digital experience on their phone or on a tablet or on a desktop. And so what a user journey does is it takes a look at what that full journey is. For instance, if you are looking at a brochure, oftentimes people kind of flip through brochures from the front to the back. You might open it in the middle, but oftentimes we start in the front page and we just flip through them. And the traditional thinking is that websites were the same way. So you would design a website so that the home page is where people entered on, and then you direct them to the about page, and maybe a products page, and a, and a contact page for when they're interested in reaching out to you. Uh, but that's not the way that people use websites today. As a matter of fact, for the majority of websites, over 50% of entrances are not on the homepage. In other words, people don't enter your website through, you know, taylorsicecreamshop.com. They enter it through yeah. a, maybe the hours of operation page or maybe it's the locations page or what have you. So the benefit of doing something like a user journey, like a journey map, is to say, Let's lay out a few different scenarios, and then what do we want somebody in these scenarios to do? So if someone lands on the hours of operation page, what, what, what would we like them to do? What's the intended result? We probably want them to you know, get directions to one of our locations so that they can come and see us. Maybe they have a quick question, so they want to tap on our phone number so that they can call us. Maybe they want to be able to text us. Maybe they want to read nutritional information. So sitemap can be valuable as long as there's time invested in it. And if you have a, a more complex digital experience or website, uh, then, then I'd say a user journey map where you're kind of literally drawing this out. How do people enter my website? And what's the full journey I want them to take can be an even more valuable uh, aspect. Taylor, thank you for that. I, I... That was the question I was most curious about because I see sitemaps on a lot of websites and I never understood the purpose of them, why it's public information, if you will. So I'm still not sure why there's an actual sitemap on the website, but at least now I understand why people map their sites. Oh, that's for Google. <laughs> um, so if it's that's in the footer of a website, okay. yeah, yeah, so, so they're, they're – they want the Google crawler to, to pick up that sitemap so that Google doesn't miss any of the pages on their website. Oh, okay. Very good. I always like it when I learn something new. Last question. <laughs> Happy to help. 
Perry, there you go. Before I let you go, what's the best way for listeners to reach you? Uh, you can email me at Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at BlackstoneMedia.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, so it's at T-Trusty, so at T-T-R-U-S-T-Y. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on. You've given us a great deal of information that I am sure everyone will agree is quite actionable, so thank you. It was an honor. Thank you, Bruce. Once again, this is Bruce Hurwitz. Thank you for listening, and have a safe and prosperous week.